We left off in 1 Samuel with Saul, overpowered by the Holy Spirit, lying on the ground naked, reduced to a kind of madness. And we will see here this morning that this experience did not convince him to stop hunting David. Apparently a series of public humiliations, not enough to make an enraged person reconsider. How much wreckage do you have to pile up before you maybe think about changing course? So we come this morning to this rather long chapter, chapter 20, 1 Samuel. Now length in these narratives is usually a sign of importance. Remember, they weren't typing or even using pen and paper. Writing utensils and writing materials are scarce and they're costly. It's time-consuming work to write in the ancient world, and you wouldn't just ramble on needlessly. So when you have a long narrative in a book like 1 Samuel, you know, it might overwhelm us. We might think, this is, this is somewhat tedious. This is really long. But the narrator thinks that the material matters. And here, the reason it matters is because we see the covenant, the pact that was made between Jonathan and David. We see it at work. And we see it at work on the ground, if you will in the danger and in the turbulence of real life. We talk a lot about covenant around here. Our confessional standards say that the only way God relates to creatures at all is by means of condescending and forging a covenant with them. We could have no fruition of him as our blessedness and reward, the Westminster Confession says, except by covenant. Covenant is how God relates to creatures. It's a structured, ordered kind of relationship. And here we get to see how that covenant fleshes itself out in real life a little bit. And so we're going to look at the text under the four headings that are on the back inside page of the bulletin. Covenant and safety, covenant and fidelity, covenant and family, and covenant peace. So, first then, covenant and safety. So even after Saul's humiliation, David is probably smart enough to know this won't be enough. And so David continues fleeing. And he goes back to Jonathan's house. He gets there. He says, what have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to kill me? You know, David doesn't... He knows a lot, but he doesn't quite know all of Saul's motives. He doesn't really know his end game. That's going to be revealed in this chapter. So he flees to Jonathan for help. And what David is doing here then is he's fleeing to the covenant Jonathan had made with him. Remember, Jonathan initiated this covenant. And David is now appealing to that covenant for safety. And Jonathan is shocked here. He says... Never. You are not going to die. Now this, I mean, this could be ignorance. It's probably a good bit of naivete. Maybe it's a little bit of a son trying to think the best of his father. 
It's important to remember, Jonathan has been absent from the last string of Saul's attempts on David's life. The last he knew, apparently, was that he had talked Saul out of an assassination order. And that his father had taken a bow to protect David's life. But still, I mean, how many assassination orders would it take? I mean, how many assassination orders would your father have to issue before you stopped giving him the benefit of the doubt? Apparently, for Jonathan, the number's greater than one. It's only been one assassination order. I'm sure he doesn't want to hurt you. So he's dubious. He's dubious of David's claim that he's still in danger. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? Surely it's not not happening. And so David has to ratchet up his game, and so David swears an oath. He uses the language of the covenant, the covenant between them. He appeals to it immediately. Your father knows very well that I have found favor. In some Bibles, kindness. The Hebrew is hased, right? Loyalty. I have found this in your eyes. That favor, that grace, that kindness, that's what issued in this pact, this covenant between Jonathan and David. Saul may not know everything, but he knows that Jonathan has looked with favor on David. He knows that his heart was knit to David. He could gather that from that marvelous speech that Jonathan made in defense of David last week when he talked him out of the assassination order. So he's hidden his latest assaults on David from Jonathan, David says, lest Jonathan be grieved. Right? And then David makes the oath. Covenants come with oaths. He says, as surely as the Lord lives and you live, there's only a step between me and death. It's David's way of saying, I call God as my witness. Believe me, my life is in danger. That's a step between me and death. There's the distance between my head and your father's spear stuck in the wall. Not once, not twice, but three times already. And then Jonathan now is at least open, somewhat persuaded, says, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. And so David skillfully concocts a scheme which I think is largely to convince Jonathan of his father's malicious intent. He gives Jonathan a story to tell. A lie. It's a ruse. Tell tell your father this about why I'm going to be missing from this two-day new moon feast. David would be expected to dine at the king's table still, apparently. Right? If he's missed it all, you know, Jonathan is to say, well, David had to go to Bethlehem. He had to go to this family festival in his hometown. And if, and if your father says, all right, fine, then I know I'm safe. Maybe the Holy Spirit subdued your father's rage after all. But if he loses his temper and he wants to do me harm, same word as a harmful spirit from the Lord to Saul. If he wants to do me harm you know, then I'll need to be informed about that. Notice verse 8 in the text. It's crucial here. As for you, show kindness. Again, hesed, loyal love. Show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. 
Another feature of covenants that's brought out here that's very helpful is the Lord watches. He's the watcher, the witness, the upholder of covenants. Not only the covenant between him and us, but covenants that, that we then make with one another. Horizontal covenants. God upholds them. And again, Jonathan initiated the covenant. And David is saying to Jonathan, look, I need you to place my interests above your own once again, Jonathan. And to show how serious this bond is, David says, look, if I'm guilty, you can kill me yourself. If you think I've committed an offense against your father, some kind of usurpation of the throne, then go ahead and kill me. Never, Jonathan says, never. But he, he, he believes David is innocent. If I had the least inkling that my father wanted to harm you, I'd tell you. Jonathan chooses David over Saul, his father. Why does he do this? Because the covenant is thicker than blood. Anytime someone says, well, you know, family is the most important thing, I always say, no, it's not. The covenant is thicker than blood. And David flees to the covenant for refuge. And Jonathan has promised to supply it. So second thing here, then, is this covenant and fidelity. They step outside, presumably not to be overheard. We're not really sure. But the material here is, has heightened sensitivity. Jonathan himself takes an oath. He says, may the Lord deal with me ever so severely if I don't send you away in peace. You know, meaning, you know, should I determine that my father's going to harm you, I'm going I'm to get you out of here. Again, the covenant. Why are, you might ask yourself, why do they keep taking oaths? They keep taking oaths because the covenant is driving the whole scene. But there's this very surprising shift here. David, I mean, Jonathan begins to speak. He begins to speak as if he is the one who's in danger. You'll notice that, and not David. He anticipates the transfer of power. May the Lord be with you as he has been, past tense, with my father. And now Jonathan asks for loyalty, covenant loyalty, kindness from David. Show me your unfailing kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed. What? The whole passage to this point is about David trying to not get killed. Now Jonathan's worried about not being executed, which is probably why they stepped outside. He knows that David will be king. And you know what else he knows? As much as he loves David, he knows it's common practice in the ancient Near East for the new regime to purge the prior regime's officers and children. So there will be no threat. And he knows this can be ruthless. And this can be bloody. And so now he invokes the covenant. And he asks for David's fidelity to him. And to his family. Don't cut me or them off. Even when the Lord has cut off every enemy of David from the face of the earth. It's a remarkable act of faith by Jonathan. He's saying, look. I'm the one in danger here. Because you are going to be king. And you are going to have an everlasting monarchy and a universal dominion. So this is the heir to the throne. 
speaking to the hunted outlaw, David, in his hour of darkness and impotence, of the day when the Lord cuts all his enemies off. And the first major enemy is going to be his own father, Saul. This is a prophecy in the form of a covenant vow. And that brings me to the third point here, the covenant and family. So the feast finally comes. The first day, Saul assumes that David is absent due to some ceremonial uncleanness. It apparently doesn't cross Saul's mind that maybe a string of attempts on someone's life might cause them to decline a dinner invitation. Ah, it It must be a ceremonial matter. So the second day, Saul asks, where's the son of Jesse? Now, when he calls David the son of Jesse, this is derogatory. It means he's nameless. He's nothing. I won't use his name. I'll call him the son of somebody else. Then Jonathan tells the cover story that David gave him. And Jonathan even expands on the cover story. This is always the problem with a cover story. The person who's telling it can can improvise. And it's interesting that when Jonathan tells Saul the story about David going to Bethlehem, he actually uses the word for elude or escape. Now, whether Saul picks this up or not, we don't know. But instead of saying he was going to Bethlehem, he actually uses the Hebrew word, which means he was eluding or escaping to Bethlehem. So he's going to this family feast. And Saul is enraged. He's enraged at his son. He says, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Of course, the truth is that Jonathan's the son of a perverse and rebellious man. The rant continues. I know that you sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness. It's an extreme verging on the obscene outburst. But Saul, now he clearly knows Jonathan's made a choice for David. He knew that. But here's what he knows new. And against me and against our family. And so Saul plays his cards more openly than he has in the whole book at this point. He says, as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now you might think, how is it possible that Saul still thinks that his line can have the throne? He's, he's, it's very clear now that Saul's just ignoring Samuel. It's not like he doesn't know what Samuel said, what the Lord's word is. It's that sometimes in life people just decide, well, I'm not going to listen to Samuel. Maybe he's a false prophet, whatever the reasons are. People are, for various reasons, deranged or deceived. And so Saul decides, I'm going to fight for my own line to continue and for the monarchy to stay in my house. I know Samuel thinks otherwise, but there are lots of people running around Israel prophesying. There's lots of whack jobs out there. Maybe, who knows, right? There's ways to rationalize these things. And what you have in Saul is this extended life of self-justification and rationalization in the face of all the counter-evidence. And this is why Jonathan refusing to contend for the crown, indeed siding with this outsider, is so infuriating for Saul. Look, if you're deep, holed up deep in your rebellion, and someone you expect to join you doesn't join you, that gets you angry. And so he asks David to be brought to him. He calls David a son of death. 
First the son of Jesse, then the son of death. And Jonathan defends him again as if, as if his father's open to reason. He says, why should he be put to death? What has he done? And then Saul responds by hurling his spear at his own son, Jonathan. Right? One, one minute ago, Saul said he was concerned about Jonathan's kingdom. And about Jonathan succeeding to the throne. Now, in rage, in irrationality, he tries to kill the same Jonathan. And then we get this wonderful understatement. It's, it's probably the greatest dry understatement in the book of 1 Samuel to this point. Verse 33. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. It's a little late, a little late to the game, Jonathan, but it's... So... Jonathan now has to seal a choice, right? He has to to choose the covenant over family, over blood, over his own father. He gets up in anger. He refuses to eat. He's grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David, and he leaves. Finally, then, covenant peace. They go through this little coded arrow-shooting ritual, and it signals... At the end, to David, that he's got to flee. They send the young boy away. And then there's this unscripted scene of departure. David gets up out of his hiding place. He bows himself down to the ground three times in humility to Jonathan, showing he is still subordinate to Jonathan. Jonathan is the superior in this covenant arrangement at this point. They kiss each other. You might remember that Samuel kissed Saul back when he anointed him as king. This is a sign of the transfer of power. They wept together. And here, for the first time, you get a glimpse into David's inner emotional world. Remember I mentioned last week how the narrator creates a kind of aura of silence around David. He's the mysterious king figure who can't be touched, whose future destiny is secure no matter what's going on around him. But the text tells us here that when they wept... David wept the most. David wept the most. And you learn something important about the covenant here too, I think. The covenant has both a legal, public dimension. right? It has a dimension of political loyalty. But it has a deep, subjective side. A side of passion and emotion. Right? The covenant is reiterated again here. Go in peace, they say. It's a benediction of peace for two people now hated by the regime. The text says, We have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, and the Lord is witness between you and me, between your descendants and my descendants forever. David leaves. He's now officially, quite literally, in the wilderness. Jonathan, the text says, goes back to town. At this point, one might think, I wonder who's got the tougher future here because Jonathan's got to go back to his father for now. When you've stormed out of a dinner and your father's tried to kill you, he's going to go back and work for the regime. In any event, they don't know that this is perhaps the end of their face-to-face relationship on earth. They will, in fact, meet one more time. But for now, they leave bound by the covenant, but also bound and surrounded by the peace of the covenant. 
So I'm going to conclude, and I'm going to make a brief point on all four of these, these points in the Sermon about the Covenant. The first one is safety. Safety. So David runs here to the covenant for protection. And the application here is quite simple and direct and blunt, right? We are to run to the one who in love, who in hesed, has bound himself to us, namely Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, right? Run to him for safety and refuge and protection. There's a beautiful thing in the prologue of John's gospel. The same words that are used of Yahweh in Exodus 34, where it says that, that the Lord God is rich in mercy, hesed, and faithfulness. When you translate into that into Greek in John's gospel, in that famous prologue in John chapter 1, that translates as Jesus was full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of hesed, for he is the hesed. He is the covenant loyalty of God in our flesh. So here's where this touches down, right? It's because of God's covenant promises and the renewal of those in Christ and the new covenant that we are to flee to him for refuge and protection because he has bound himself and pledged himself. He has pledged his own life to help and assist and protect you. And that brings us to fidelity. Jonathan saw the, the coming king and he, he pleads for fidelity to him and to his own household. And we are to do the same. We not only flee to Christ, but we plead with him to uphold his covenant with us. You are always on firm ground when you are asking God to do what God has promised to do. Right? You are always on ground which is less firm when you're asking God for stuff that he hasn't covenantally bound himself to do. We we have to make our distress and our problem his problems because he has promised to be your God. So we not only flee to Christ, but we, we plead with him to uphold his covenant with us and with our children. right? To deliver us and our house from the sanctions of the covenant. Everyone who has been baptized has had their life marked or structured in a fundamental way by the covenant fidelity of God. Thus, right, thus, be faithful to your baptism. Your baptism summons you to fidelity. In it, God pledges fidelity from his side. Life consists, one scholar said, not in achieving one's goals, but in keeping one's promises. And in our case, that would mean our baptismal promises. (coughs) Baptism binds you to the one who has bound himself to you, and this knot is not a noose. This is the bond of perfect liberty. Third, family. Sometimes, especially in the face of corrupt parents and a corrupt family environment, Jesus calls us to the same severing, agonizing choice that Jonathan made. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even their own life, that person cannot be my disciple. 
Right? The covenant is thicker than blood. That's why Jonathan chooses David over his own father and over all of his relatives. Finally, then, peace. Peace. The covenant establishes peace. Ultimately, because it's sealed with the blood of the son of David. But we heard this in the New Testament lesson. Having been justified, Paul says, by his blood, we have peace with God. And here, as in your life, right, this this is peace in the midst of life's turbulence and threats. It's very important that Jonathan and David in this hour of darkness and distress, affirm the peace and part in peace. That's covenant peace. In me, Jesus says, in me, you have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Or as Paul puts it, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So it's very important to think of peace as something that's objective, like the covenant. It's it's established. It's out there. But you you have a state of peace with God, objective peace. There's no lawsuits, there's no warfare, there's no alienation. It's objectively established, but you have to allow it to rule in your heart. The covenant then, not the external conditions. The external conditions are unfavorable, to put it mildly for David. The covenant, not the conditions, will carry the day. This appeal to the covenant is at the heart of what it it means to live um, in a Reformation piety, in that way before God. I saw a plaque at Matt and Melissa's house recently, and it it reminded me of something which fits in here well. It It was a quote from Bonhoeffer from a sermon he wrote to a couple that was getting married. Wrote the sermon from prison, I believe. But basically he said, you know, your love upholds your marriage. But from now on, your marriage upholds your love. Meaning the objective covenant bond is the thing that allows you to endure and sustain. That's the complete inverse of the culture we live in, right? Where it's love upholds the marriage. When love dies, the marriage dies. Bonhoeffer's point is the covenant upholds love. Your love does not uphold the covenant. And this text is a beautiful illustration of that. It's the covenant bond between David and Jonathan which upholds their love and which nourishes their love. But their love will wax and wane. It'll be stressed. So it's a beautiful thing. The covenant will carry the day. The new covenant in Christ will carry the day, not the conditions. His oath, his covenant His blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Our hope is built on nothing less. And it needs nothing more than the covenant that God has made with you in Jesus Christ. Glory to Christ, the Son of David and the mediator of the new covenant. Amen. Amen.